Well, it's certainly good to be here with you once again, and I just pray that the Lord will continually supply the pulpit need here at uh, Mount Olive, that the Lord will bless you and give you uh, a real source of uh, continuity. Certainly uh, having a pastor is uh, a stabilizing influence uh, in the church. And we know from the New Testament that God gives gifts to the church and includes pastors, teachers. And we need those men who are called by God to uh, be a source of encouragement uh, to you all by faithful attending to the ministry of the Word. And I believe the Lord's people need to be fed. We need the feeding of the, the sheep to take place on a regular basis. And I just pray God's blessing in that regard. I ask God to work a miracle. Uh, to perform a work um, that you otherwise, by natural man, uh, wouldn't behold. But by his grace and by his leadership of the Spirit, you can come to the fruition of it. Well, in our study this morning, I'd like to invite your attention to Second Samuel chapter 23, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, a good verse to study this morning and read and to digest. Um, I pray that the Lord will unfold the word. Uh, the entrance of thy word gives light. We looked that word up a little bit and uh, seems to suggest, as another uh, version may have it, is an unfolding of thy word. I often wonder how a sermon's going to just come out. Well, you can't tell. It has to unfold. Uh, the entrance of light uh, must get brighter and brighter. And it must show us further and further the truth of God as we go through the scriptures. In 2 Samuel 23, I'd like to read for you, beginning with verse 3. 2 Samuel 23, this is the last words of David. Uh, at least that's what it says in the first verse. It says, now these be the last words of David. And he begins, he says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds. As the tender grass springing out of the earth, by clear shining after rain. Beautiful picture there. I believe David is speaking prophetically of the Lord. And then he says, although my house be not so, in other words, he's going to... Draw a contrast with this beautiful natural scene that he has as he sees the sun rising in the morning, as he notices the tender grass springing out of the earth by a clear shining after rain. He says, in contrast with that beautiful imagery that he portrays here in verse 4, he says, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. I want to ask a few questions this morning, and maybe we can understand this text in light of those questions, if we can find some answers. Uh, who is it that David is uh, speaking about um, in verse 4? Um, what does he refer to? What does he mean by his house not being so with God? What does he mean in relationship to a covenant What's the everlasting covenant? What's it mean to be ordered 
in all things? What's the order of the covenant? Why is it sure? And what is his salvation? What is his desire? Although he says here that he doesn't make it to grow. Certainly, as we see here in this text, I want to draw three major divisions. Number one, David's chaos. Number two, David's covenant. And number three, David's consolation. And I basically say those headings to help me more than you. It helps me keep track as to where I want to go, the Lord being our helper. If we know anything about David, we know this, that his life was filled with trouble. As the scripture points out, these be the last words. Some have often questioned what that means because there's a whole lot more that David will say. Um, 1 Kings chapter 1 tells us about the end of David's life. And another chapter follows this, the 24th chapter in the second Samuel. And so, evidently, the last words may mean uh, a prophetic standpoint, in the sense David being the uh, uh, instrument of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, verse 2, and his word was in my tongue. And so it's uh, obviously and could be referring to the fact that these are the last words by which God will speak through David. And so it's fitting that uh, we look at them this morning. David's trouble, we all know David's trouble. It would, be, uh, it would take a whole lot more time this morning to go through all the tragedy and the circumstances and the pitfalls and the problems in David's life. He certainly had trouble. We can think back and just pick out a few things in his life. You remember it wasn't long after he slayed Goliath that Saul sought his life. Saul was jealous. Saul was envious of David. Uh, the people followed David. And uh, I think as a result of that, Saul was tremendously uh, envious of David's popularity and the, the fact that God used him to defeat one of the greatest uh, enemies of Israel. And so Saul certainly wasn't uh, a source of David's happiness, but a source of his trouble. And then certainly David uh, did, did a few things that he would fit, I think, perfectly in this 21st century. Uh, in a sense, as we look at Hollywood and the deplorable case in which we uh, see the exploitation of women in, in our society today, being used and abused and becoming victims at the hands of uh, uh, egotistical men and who were uh, who were satisfying their own lust. Uh, we see David uh, not long uh, pursuing uh, uh, women one after the other, whether it be Michael, Saul's daughter, or Bathsheba, or Abigail, or other women that he pursued. He seemed to have this uh, uh, this modern mentality when it came to uh, the abuse of women. We certainly see in David uh, tremendous sin and uh, disappointment. And yet, he was a man after God's own heart. And this is a great uh, stumbling block for many, uh, especially our detractors, those who are enemies of Christianity, like to highlight uh, the sins of, uh, uh, of men of God as a way to rationalize their own behavior. And so David continues on in his life, and we could mention men like Joab and Ahithophel and others uh, who, you remember Shimei cursed David, 
uh, various people and characters throughout the, his life that uh, just either was a source of his trouble or a evidence or a manifestation of his own sin. You remember Nathan said to David after, of course, uh, Uriah was put to death, basically. Uriah was Bathsheba's husband, you remember. And David had Uriah placed in the forefront of the battle in order that he would be killed. Uh, he gave specific directions to Joab uh, that when in the heat of the battle against this great uh, mighty men, that they would withdraw and leave Uriah um, uh, suspect and leave Uriah vulnerable. And then he died in order for David to have Bathsheba. And Bathsheba, you remember, mourned, mourned for Uriah. So don't think there's some kind of secret conspiracy going on between Bathsheba and David. Bathsheba loved Uriah. And uh, it was David's greed and lust that pursued this evil agenda. Of course, though, God overrules the troubles and sins of men. And, of course, Bathsheba would be privileged to be a part of that pedigree of Christ, along with others like Rahab the harlot and Ruth the Moabitess, who was, at least in the early part of her life, given to idolatry. And so we see the book of God as a record of actual events. You know, it's not covered over, sugar-coated in the way we might write the book in order to appear pleasing to our sensitivities and pleasing to our uh, own pursuits, you know, in the sense that we want to, um, you know, whenever we tell a story about ourselves, we seem to pick out the highlights of our life, things that are that we can really glory in, but uh, not is the case with the Bible. God's book is the, inspired by the Lord, and he tells it like it is. And uh, it's uh, a tremendous key, I believe, a, a tremendous valid point in the support of the fact that the Bible is inspired by God. It's inspired by God because he doesn't sugarcoat it, because he doesn't hide the evil. David manifests himself that my house is not so. The trouble has followed it. Now David is like any one of us. David is a child of God. I believe that. He was a man after God's own heart. I mean, who here can point a finger at David, the psalmist of Israel, that one by whom God spoke? He wrote the book of Psalms. He was instrumental in the leadership of a nation. He, if you read the Psalms, you can see, uh, as we read earlier in Psalms 42, his heart panteth for God. There's no doubt about it that he was a true born-again child of God. But like all true born-again child of God, we sometimes are, uh, um, um, we, 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 we make shipwreck of our faith in some measure or form. I was watching just recently some documentaries on the 36 Olympics, 1936 Olympics. And you remember those if you've ever watched a documentary or read about them. Some referred to them as the uh, Nazi Olympics. That's the one where Hitler uh, was there and he paraded himself uh, among the people. And uh, it was really sad to look at it, looking back, and how people just gave him uh, blind trust and uh, ultimately, we know where he took the country. 
Uh, that's the Olympics where you remember Jesse Owens ran as an American and uh, won. But one uh, side story I was reading about to the 36 Olympics is when the German women were running the race. I don't know if it was a 400-meter race, but it was uh, one where they passed the baton. And these women were certainly eligible for the race. They were very uh, qualified. They were chosen because of their athletic ability, and there they were to represent uh, Germany. But something interesting happened. The last leg of the race, uh, the young lady dropped the baton. And after that uh, episode that they lost this race, after that event, uh, it was reported in the news in a variety of different languages. And in the English uh, caption to this uh, magazine article uh, about this baton that she dropped, it was said that she muffed it. She muffed it. In the French caption, it said a word which I can't uh, quote for you in French. It basically said she dropped the witness. She dropped the witness. You see, all of God's people are eligible by being born from this, by, by God, born from above, by His Spirit, regenerated, uh, are eligible to run the race. But not all of us bear the witness that we should. And David, in his life, dropped the baton on several occasions and lost sight of bearing witness to his calling. There's a few points I want to make this morning in regard to sin in the life of David. And from a New Testament perspective, when we consider the tragedy and the chaos of David's life. The first point is this, that sin in other Christians' lives are not a reason to justify it in ours. In other words, the sin that we find and see and appear in other people's lives who claim to be Christians and who appear to be Christians and manifest their calling should not give us reason to rationalize any kind of evil in our own life. Uh, this is where uh, a lot of people like to look at Christi Christians and they point the finger at Christians and they somehow say, see, he did it, so I can too. Um, the popular bumper sticker on the back of some cars, I kind of like, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Uh, however, we can uh, abuse that in such a way that we can rationalize our own sin. Our people today, in this day and age, in this modern age uh, of lust and greed and sensuality, uh, are finding themselves um, victims of their own sin. And as a result, they're suffering great tragedy and loss and being destroyed by this sin. They seem to justify it in their own life because everybody else is doing it. There's nothing that I can see in the New Testament that gives us reason uh, to justify uh, our former way of life. I like to look at it, my life at least, from the standpoint of a clock, if you will. And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 3, I want you to notice what Peter says. He says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. Looking back in his former self, prior to his being called, being, being uh, numbered with the disciple of Christ, being chosen of God, prior to that point, he, can, he looked at his life in such a way that back then he had enough of what he lived while with the Gentiles, the will of the Gentiles. When he said, when he walked in lasciviousness, 
lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Obviously, it could be a, uh, a reference to the form of worship that took place in that pagan world. Uh, in Ephesus, for instance, there was the great goddess Dianus, and there was horrific things that took place in the temple Diana. And uh, the Gentiles worked all kinds of lustfulness. They got drunk uh, in their form of worship. One thing that's very key in understanding false doctrine, there's two particular things that keep it up. There's the theory or the doctrine of it, and then there's the practice that keeps it going. They had the theory, and they had the doctrine, however evil it was. And Peter is calling our attention to the fact that we're no longer like them, that we're no longer, look what he says in verse 2 of 1 Peter 4, he says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. And so what I'm saying here is as we look at these men who sin that are amongst us, or women who fall, we don't use or justify our own selves by looking at their sin. We condemn it, and we no longer want to live that way. And uh, so look at your life like a clock, if you will. And I know that uh, I'm past the point of uh, midday. Somebody says there are certain phases of a man's life. He's a child. He's a He's a baby, he's a child, he's an adolescent, he's an adult, he's a man, and then, of course, he's an older man, or a senile, in the sense that he begins to falter and fail, and doesn't have the mind or the strength that he once had. And if you can see your life along this clock, this 12-hour period, if you will, uh, many of us are just starting out on the, on the high side, some of us are at midday, and some of us are in the twilight of our years. Uh, but all of us, no matter where we are along this gauge, if you will, should look back in the time in which we once walked and say, that's sufficient enough. I've had enough of it. I'm now walking according to the will of God and to serve Him in newness of spirit. And so sin in other lives are not a reason to justify it in our own. Secondly, the pattern for godly living is not their evil, but their faith. When we look at patterns for how we should live, now David certainly, however trouble he had in his life, is a pattern for us to live. But we don't look at the sins of the flesh in order to pattern ourselves. In Hebrews chapter 13, I want you to notice a key word in verse 7. Hebrews 13 and verse 7. Look at this pattern. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. Certainly there are those who have uh, in our mind... Remind us of men and women who are instruments of God's faithfulness in our generation, who we so desire to follow. Notice what it says. Who do we follow? Do we follow them? Do we follow their actions? I want you to notice whose faith follow. Underline, underline that word faith. Whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. And that word conversation means lifestyle or their behavior. And so we look to patterns to follow. The Apostle Paul said, be followers of me, even I am as of Christ. And so we follow men and women. We pattern ourselves. That's why we ask God to give us men of faith, women of uh, sobriety and charity and chastity, so that we can have examples in our church uh, of faith by which to follow. Of course, this covers just recently a great chapter on faith, chapter 11. 
And when the apostle says faith, obviously it has reference to those men and women who gave themselves to Christ, who despised, who despised and looked down upon the uh, ridicule and the negativity that others looked at when they served the Lord. But they were more willing to suffer the reproach of Christ, far greater riches uh, than the world and all that is contained therein. We don't follow the world. We love not the world. We seek not the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all these things are not of the Father. They are of the world. All those things we do not pattern ourselves after. And so when we look at David, you know, this is not a perfect example, is it? And we might need to realize that there are many others in the Bible that give us a good example and pattern by which to follow. As I've mentioned, others in the Bible, like Jephthah, who was a great leader, although he was a cast out and illegitimately born. He was nevertheless a captain of Israel. We look at other people in the Bible like uh, Esther, who, were, who, who, were, who, who she was given to uh, serving the Lord and recognizing his sovereignty in her life at that particular time to be a witness for the truth for her people. We see others throughout the scriptures that, uh, like Simeon in the New Testament who looked for the consolation of Israel or um, uh, Anna, who sang and looked for the redemption of God and amongst her people in the person of the uh, Messiah. We see others in the New Testament who are great examples, like John the Apostle. Great example of a pattern by which to follow and to, to uh, pattern our lives after. One particular occasion I like found in Galatians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul is uh, making mention of uh, the disciple of John. And he said some things regarding John there that I really liked and keyed in on. And uh, when John met the Apostle Paul, I don't know if this was his first time meeting him, but I kind of sense it was. Let me just turn to the scripture <clears throat> in Galatians chapter 2. He says this. For he, verse 8, chapter 2, that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. That's a parenthesis. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen. Now notice this in verse 10. Only they, speaking of John, James, and Cephas, here meeting the apostle Paul, what did, they, what did they say to Paul? What did they try to assert, affirm to the Apostle Paul? Only they would that we should remember the poor. The same which I also was forward to do. Now, I look at that scripture and I think about the Apostle John informing the Apostle Paul, just in case you forget, make mention of the poor. And so I think John, in that particular characteristic, is worthy to follow as a pattern in our lives. Paul certainly may have been given. Uh, he certainly had, he was eligible, if you will, uh, to be susceptible to, to, to if you will, uh, to falling prey uh, to his position, his elevation, as not only an apostle, but where he came from. Of course, we all know that the apostle Paul counted it dumb. He considered it loss uh, for the excellency of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ran the race and he didn't drop the baton. He bore the witness of his Lord. But just in case, John said, 
don't neglect the poor. And I know there's been many ministers among us that have, uh, you know, it seemed to have forgotten the poor, seemed to forgot where they came from. You know, there, in, in some cases, uh, a minister can be very arrogant, self-conceited because of his position, his, his elevation, if you will. The fact that he forgets that he's a servant of Christ. You, you know, sometimes a minister is given to his power and position and prestige in such a way that uh, he uses the people of God and his position as a cloak of covetousness, seeks to pad his own purse, his pocket. He, seek, he, seeks, he seeks to be eminent among the Lord's people. And so John is certainly worthy as he, he draws um, uh, Paul's attention to the baser things of life. So not only uh, we look at David and we recognize that though he is not necessarily a pattern in his life and his practical side because of the trouble and the sin in his own life, but we also make mention that he had a lot of faith that is worthy to be remembered. But let us follow faith. Let us consider the end of their conversation. And uh, thirdly, in regards to this chaos in David's life and about sin, I think we should not be critical or harass others for their faults and failures. We could stand in judgment of David today. There's enough to preach about today in regards to the trouble of David's life and the sin in his life that keep us busy to the twilight hour. But I believe uh, we need to recognize mercy. We need to recognize, you know, I'm not talking about being judgmental in the sense of discerning the difference between good and evil. I think all of God's people are called to make judgments. Now, I'm not saying that we are not sensitive to this aspect of the discerning work of the Holy Spirit. I think we still call sin, sin. We're not to cover it up, push it under the rug, and pretend it doesn't exist. Our churches are holy habitations unto the Lord. And far be it that our church should succumb to the sinful influence of this world. But what I am saying is that those among us that fall and falter, who need to be restored, uh, we need not harass and be critical of, of their faults and failures. Notice in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, speaking of mercy, how is it that we uh, deal with our brothers and sisters who've had failures? How do we deal with David in his own life full of problems? in light of who we are by, uh, by God's calling. Notice in Colossians, after the book of Philippians, if you can find Philippians, you can go one book over. And in the third, I'm wearing these pages out, it's time for a new Bible. In Colossians chapter 3, notice with me. Well, I'll just begin reading with... Uh, he says in verse 12, "...put on therefore as the elect of God." So he's talking about putting on, verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Well, we're told to put off earlier on, he said, verse 5, mortify therefore the members of, uh, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. I suppose that word just about covers everything that's not right and godly. Evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so these are the things that we're to put off. And then he says, verse 8, But now ye also put off all these. And then he includes anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Now this is all given to those of us who are members of the church. 
By the way, I appreciate and I admire the reading of the scripture that we heard this morning. You know what? In the fourth chapter of the same epistle, the Apostle Paul encouraged the church that this epistle, the one that we're reading, be read in the church. Verse 16 of chapter 4, just as a little sidebar and a little note. I've been accused in our own church of uh, progressive reading because we just simply read the Bible. And then he encourages not only the church epistle to be read among the Colossians, but he encouraged that same epistle to be read among the Laodiceans. Can you imagine that some people would would find fault for reading the Bible in the church of the living God? Well, it happens. Well, anyway, these are the things that we need to recognize. Now, when I woke up this morning, I put off my bed clothes and put on my church clothes. Much the same way uh, we are encouraged here this morning, there are certain things about our natural man that we need to be reminded to put off on a regular basis. We put them off. Now, I've come across, uh, it wasn't long ago, somebody, a member in our church, sent me a little email. They went to a, uh, a place of worship somewhere where they were in Florida and uh, you know, just really rejoiced in this company of saints. And then he sent me a newsletter and some of the things that they said at the church. And I said, brother... I want you to take note of what they're saying. See, I could see right through it. Very subtle. What they were teaching was uh, the victory that we had through Christ. And that sounds really great. And I said amen to that. But they taught that a man born again would never have any inclination, no sin, no problems, no lust. And I said, my goodness, they're teaching a flesh sanctification. They're teaching perfection of the flesh, this side of heaven. And I said, brother and beware. He, see, they, they, their church position was this, that if you sin, that it's just evidence that you've never really been born of God. Well, let me tell you something. The Apostle Paul was teaching and showing born-again children of God to put off things of their former self, of the lust of the flesh, these evil things that he mentions. How many of you ever been angry? I mean, if we're angry, and that's proof that we're not born again, all of us are in trouble. The fact is that uh, anger and wrath and these things that are associated with our natural man still hang with us. When God saved us at the cross, he saved us. Listen, he didn't restore, reform, or perfect the flesh. Now, ultimately, we will be perfected in new body, a spiritual body. But he pronounced death. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's what he did. He didn't restore what we have in us. You see what I'm saying? We're still partakers of that natural man. And therefore the Apostle Paul said, put it off. We need to be reminded to put it off and then put on. Notice this, as the elect of God, verse 12, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. And so these are the attitudes that are to be predominant in our life today as born-again children of God. doesn't always happen, does it? But this is what we're to remind it of it. And we're not to uh, uh, look down upon it. Uh, We're to have bowels of mercy. That's the word I really wanted to key in on. Because mercy seems to suggest something that is prevented. You know, Paul said, or Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 in another place, he said, charity covereth a multitude of sins. Charity covers a multitude of sins. When we look at men who have fell like David, when we consider the troubles in his life and the sinful actions that he performed in his own life, we have grace enough to cover a multitude of errors or sins because that's mercy. Mercy prevents 
judgment in that sense. It prevents harassment. It prevents our being critical of another man's sin. It recognizes the fact that we too are made of the same cloth that he was. And so we don't, or we're not critical in that sense. We judge it. Now, I don't want to be misquoted here or misunderstood. We are ferocious against sin. We hate sin as God hates it. We hate sin as the Apostle Paul hates it. We abhor that which is wicked. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. The Apostle Paul, was, uh, he consented to the death of Saul. He was, uh, he was not perfect by no stretch of the imagination. From the standpoint of the legalistic tradition of the Old Testament law, he was blameless, there's no doubt. But in his heart, he was as big a sinner as any you and I were and are. But we can still have mercy. He still had mercy on those, and he still, without uh, reservation, uh, judged the sinful actions because he called on God's people. He said, such were some of you. Such were some of you. He said, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so let's move on. Fourthly, another point in David's life when we consider his chaos is this. Don't cozy up to sins. Don't cozy up to sins. You know, children of God today, you know, we're bombarded in every way, aren't we, today, by the media, the mass media, the powerful influence of today's TV. Uh, just a tremendous influence in our, in our lives. And we need to be very careful about it. By the way... Uh, the TV in our house broke about a month or two ago, and we haven't replaced it yet. We've done along with, uh, without it just fine. And um, I don't really miss it, except maybe for the news. I guess the point that I'm making is we're bombarded today on every angle when it comes to sin. And sometimes we have uh, lost our uh, unique spiritual edge, that edge which once was sharp has lost its edge, its cutting edge, and it's dampered and dull by continual uh, recognition of sin. And so we're warned today uh, not to cozy up to the sins of the flesh and become partners with it. You know, some of the Lord's people like to just see how far they can get along with sin. But I can tell you, uh, you can't take uh, a coal to your bosom and not be burned. Sin has its terrible influences and its destructive past. David never... Um, the sword never left his house. Nathan judged David in his sin. He received forgiveness, but he was judged, and the sword never left his house. And you know one of the things I noticed, you can read about in the next chapter, that David, even on his dying bed, one of the last things he ever did was make sure, Solomon, you take care of Shimei for cursing me. In other words, he had blood on his mind. The last breath that he was taking, he had blood on his mind to get take vengeance on somebody who cursed him earlier on in life. And so, you know, sin has its marks and we can lose our cutting edge and we can cozy up to sin in such a way that it just rules the day. And so the warning to the Lord's people is that we'd be very careful. I don't know anybody who can really question the doctrine of total depravity if they have a right eye on them and just read what they see in the Bible. If they just read it. I don't know how anybody can dispute or argue against the doctrine of total depravity of original sin. David said himself, I've been shapened in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. These are some facts, some hard facts that we all have to relate to when God calls us out of darkness because we're now children of the light. You know, the Apostle Paul told us to walk circumspectly. You know, when you're in darkness, you can't walk circumspectly. What does that mean? 
See, David didn't walk circumspectly in a variety of times in his life. To walk circumspectly is just merely watch where you're going. When I came up to this pulpit this morning, I was very careful to watch where I was going. But in darkness, you can't tell. You're not caring about those kind of things. In fact, in darkness, you can fall. And then, it's, and then in the very next verse, it says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And so drunkenness and darkness and walking uh, in the way in the world uh, is to walk without circumspect, uh, circumspect, without walking circumspectly. It's not, to, it's not to care how you walk. And so if we walk in such a way, we can fall and falter. And uh, heard, I remember a story about the old drunk who came home one night. And uh, he was in a fight because he got drunk and he wanted to hide all his uh, drunkenness from his wife. Well, so he went up to the bathroom and looked in the mirror and patched up all the bruises and took some Band-Aids out and put all the Band-Aids on his bruises. And then he went to bed hoping that his wife wouldn't be disturbed or find out where he was the night before. But when she woke up in the morning, she noticed something. She said, who put all those Band-Aids on the mirror in the bathroom? The fact is, he was drunk and you can't hide. Sin will eventually find you out. Sin is a destructive influence in our life. It follows you. And so when I read in our text, although my house be not so with God, I've got, I come to the conclusion that because of David's sin... He had brought trouble and chaos in his own life and also in his own household. We can give an account to Absalom who tried to take his, uh, his position as king. His own son, Absalom. It wasn't shortly after the, uh, uh, pronouncement, the pronouncement of judgment by Nathan the prophet that David had to address the sick child. The Lord struck a child sick. Bathsheba's, Bathsheba bore that child. It was sick. David, remember, fasted seven days and seven nights, uh, that that child would become healthy and be raised up. But the child died, and of course, uh, he went on. And so the trouble that was permeated in David's life was a direct result of sin. Don't cozy up to it. Uh, God may have winked at sins in the past, but now he commands every, every man to repent. All of us must live a life of godliness. We must live a life chastity. We must live a life sobriety. We must live a life in light. We're children of the light. We're not children of the, do- the darkness. And we're to walk circumspectly in this present world. Well, secondly, in this broad aspect of this uh, message this morning, is this. Not only of David's chaos, but also of David's covenant. Notice what he says. Although my house be not so with God yet. And here's another transitional word. In other words, in contrast with that chaos, He's made with me an everlasting covenant, order in all things and sure. And I've got about 15 minutes to get to the best part of this verse. I tell you what, I know where David is. You know, I'm, in the, I'm, I'm, I'm fast approaching the twilight of my life. And I can look back in my life and say, man, did I mess up. How many occasions have I messed up my life? And yet in contrast with that, I can say this, yet God has made with me An everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. You know, I'm thankful that God has given us a hope in our heart that we are children of God. That something has blessed us. You know, we cannot... Listen, how did David view himself? That's a good question. I know at the end of his life, he considered his house, the troubles, nothing, and compared to what? 
and compared to the everlasting covenant that God provided for him. Let's just look at a few scriptures here. Um, let's try, well, Psalms 51. He wrote this great psalm, chapter 51. David repents of his sin. How does David view himself now? Also, Psalms 32 is another great chapter. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, verse 1. Wash me thoroughly, verse 2, for mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He mentions sin in four different ways, if you will, or his rebellion against God. He says in verse 3, I acknowledge my transgression. He said, and my sin is ever before thee. He said against thee, verse 4, and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. So he's mentioning iniquity, he's mentioning sin, he's mentioned transgressions, which basically is an act against God's holy law, um, a, a transgression or a trespass against God's holy law. Then he mentions sin, basically missing the mark, iniquity, the fact that he's uh, ungodly in the sense that he's uh, uh, filthy in the sight of God. He said, cleanse me from my sin. And so he certainly uh, shares uh, various verbs here that denote uh, his position. And he cries out for mercy. And so uh, David uh, continually uh, recognizes himself as being blessed of God. Now in another text, if I can find it. Let's go to Psalms 103. Here's another uh, idea or view uh, from David's uh, particular uh, vantage point, how he viewed himself. He said, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. Verse 9 of Psalms 103. Notice with me in verse 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. I believe he's talking about a covenant position that he has with God. I know he realizes the transgressions that he committed in his own life and the price that he had to pay for him, but now he's talking about the fact that they are removed from him. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. And so this is a beautiful picture of how God uh, blessed David to understand his, his, his uh, covenant position. Somebody may say, well, Brother Steve, that word covenant is just an Old Testament word. What's that got to do with me today? Well, notice in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26 how that same word is used for you and me today. He says, for this, he's speaking about the cup, which he gave thanks, verse 28. He said, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And that little Greek word, diakephe, in the Greek means covenant for testament. He said, basically, this is the blood of, my, uh, of the New Covenant or the New Testament, which literally is God's will for us. And included in this great will or covenant is the fact that God cleansed us from our sin. And so David can have the confidence that although his house be in terrible chaos, he's got the wonderful, blessed privilege of knowing the covenant that God made for him and with him. Notice, it says, for many, for the remission of sins. When I say this, that that covenant, he said, uh, he said that he made with me, 
It doesn't suggest in any way, shape, or form that David somehow conspired with God and agreed with God and somehow was participant with God in this covenant. It just simply means, as we looked in that New Testament scripture, that he's been made a recipient of it by mercy. In other words, he's been included in this covenant, although he himself had nothing to do with it. He didn't bring himself into the covenant with God. He was a sinner, condemned, shaped in iniquity. And neither you and I have any part in that matter outside the fact that we've been brought in. We didn't solicit it. We didn't ask for it. Uh, we didn't merit it. We didn't earn it. We just simply were given it. That's what grace is. And mercy conveys the fact that God withheld his wrath and blessed us by grace. Grace conveys the fact that he bestowed favor upon us, while mercy conveys the fact he withholds his wrath. And so grace and mercy are ours in the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to hammer out this a little bit further, let's look at Hebrews just for a few minutes as we move very quickly. In Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm in 7. He says, verse 22, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament or a covenant. He's contrasting that with the Old Testament. And so when we think about David, see the key word in understanding the word covenant there in our, in our text is, uh, is that word everlasting. Because that lets us understand that he's speaking about the new covenant or the New Testament or that covenant which was... Uh, uh, which was uh, uh, schemed, if you will, by the triune God before the world ever began, and which now says in, in, our, in our Hebrew text was a better testament. Notice chapter 8. <clears throat> Same difference here, verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, far better than whatever they had in the Old Testament. It was certainly a ministry that excelled, but the glory is much greater and better in the New Testament covenant. Uh, it's better covenant is established upon better promises for the first covenant. Had it been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But the fact is, the original first covenant, Mount Sinai, was not designed to save the flesh, was it? It's not designed because it was impossible to reform the flesh. It was given for the purposes of glorifying God and presenting, his, uh, presenting God as he is, holy and apart and separate from man. And the law, of course, was given to show that how great a transgressor man is and that the whole world... Uh, is guilty before God Almighty. And so back to our text real quickly. He says, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. Now I want you to notice how ordered this covenant is or how sure it is. How sure it is. Now, I love this word order because it conveys something that we need to know here. That what we have in our Lord is not just a happenstance. What we have in, in mercy and the forgiveness of sins and the hope of everlasting life is just not so, uh, a trivial matter. Uh, I, <laughs> what is the order of is he speaking? Is he, is he speaking about some sort of a, 
uh, order in David's life? Did David exhibit any order in his life? Think about it. No. It's just the opposite. So I know he's not talking about this order in the sense of a, a man-made fabrication of some sort. You know, finally uh, pulling yourself up by the boot, bootstraps and, and achieving all that life has. No, he's not talking about that kind of materialistic order. I don't think he's talking about a political order. I mean, if you could trace David's life, it wasn't long before uh, it was either Ahithophel or Ishbosheth or Absalom, always trying to usurp his position as king, God called king. I mean, he constantly had to fight enemies to his position as king. And so I know he's not talking about this order as being a political utopian. I believe he recognized that uh, Solomon would be uh, the king after him, but he wasn't vested in Solomon when he was thinking about this order, this, this everlasting covenant. And uh, what is it that's all around us? that conveys order in our life. What is it? I'll tell you what it is. It's creation. And this is, this is a neat point. I want you to bear with me just for a minute. It's create. What does the world teach? The, you know, one of these uh, professors of evolution once tried to, or actually a teacher of uh, creationism, conveyed the idea of the contrast between evolution and creationism as found in the Bible. The big difference was order. You know, evolution is built on chaos. It's built on uh, uh, fundamental principles of uh, haphazardness, if you could say it that way. You know, when a single-cell amoeba just joining together with something else and outsprang life, you know, purely uh, by chance. And so what he did, he took a a pile of uh, uh, popsicle sticks. I mean, he had lots of them, and and he... he spelled out his name with these popsicle sticks. And he showed the class, see that? That's order. This is my name, and I've taken the time and designed to spell out my name. And then he gathered all the sticks up in his hand, and he threw them down on the ground. And he asked the question, is that order? And, of course, the, the student said, no, that's not order. He said, that's evolution. That's what they teach. That's evolution right there. That's what they think about God. You know, Sigmund Ford, you know what he said? He said, God didn't create man. Man created God. He thought that Christians, in their weakness, in their inability to be strong in themselves, created God as a way of uh, pacifying their need of some sort. No, Sigmund Ford, man did not create God. God created us. And he created us in such a way that there's order behind it. And so when we look at creation, we see order. Now hang with me for a minute. We see the order of creation all about us. The same uh, cycles of, uh, the, 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 of, of the time pass year in and year out without alteration. The same elements in the universe are hid and fastened by God's omnipotent power in, in keeping the structure it's, an, it's a creation of order. Now, in the New Testament, and we, we really don't have time for this, so I'm just going to mention it. You need to get this point. In the New Testament, in a variety of cases where salvation is presented, it's presented in light and within the context of Christ being the creator of all things. Whether it's John chapter 1, who was in the world, who, by the, who, who created the world, The Word who was with God, who was God, that same Word 
that tabernacled or became flesh and dwelt amongst men, that same word, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who was rejected of his own, that same word who by the world was made, he came to his own, his own received not, but to them uh, who received him gave he power to become the sons of God. And so there in the context of being a child of God, not born by the will of man nor the will of the flesh, but of God, those who are blessed to be uh, born again children of God are done so by a creator of the universe, you see. And so we see that. We see also in Ephesians chapter 3 where he talks about the church being that uh, instrument whereby the manifold mysteries of God are revealed. And he mentions it in light of the God of creation. We can go to the book of Colossians where we were earlier in the first chapter in verse 16 and we see that God... Uh, who by Christ created, upholds all things by the words, word of his power. It was God who re, uh, in Christ who redeemed us in the same context. And so the point is this, that our redemption and our salvation is linked to a God who's created all things. And so the order that we find in the universe and creation is the same order that we can see in our salvation, in this idea of the covenant. And so when we think about our salvation, we're not standing on a principle of, uh, of chaos. We're standing on the principle of uh, congruity. We're standing on the principle of, of strength. We're standing on the principle of eternity. We're standing on the principle of God himself. And so I think that's what I see in this ordered in all things and sure. But this is all my salvation. And then he says, all my desire, although he maketh not to grow. And so the last aspect of this text is we've seen his chaos, we've seen his covenant, and we also see his consolation, his consolation. And I'll close with this verse found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It kind of links together what we've previously said, but it needs to be made mention of. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this in verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Remember how we're linking salvation with creation? The God of order with the God of our redemption? Notice what he says here. He says, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Now what does that bring our attention to? What is our, what's our focus now? Well, our focus is back there in the, in the world that was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And what happened? God said, let there be light, and light shined out of darkness. Now, you and I weren't there, were we? But I'll tell you where we were. We were there when God born us again. We know the difference between light and darkness. Somebody says, well, I don't know exactly when. Well, the point is, we know the difference. We know what light is. We know what it means that light shines out of darkness. So while we weren't there back then, in that early uh, creation moment, we can know in a sense, in a very small sense, what it must have been like for light to shine out of darkness. He says, and hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is, here, we're still linking this idea of creation and glory between the creation of the universe and what takes place in our own hearts. Now, the consolation idea is found in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 4. He said, We having the same spirit of faith, 
according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken, we also believe and therefore speak. He's quoting David here. He's quoting David. We've got the same faith. Somebody says, well, those Old Testament saints, they, didn't, they weren't born again by the Spirit. They weren't born again by the Spirit? What's faith a product of? Faith is a product of God's Holy Spirit. David was born again by God's Spirit. And David had faith. And David said, although it, he maketh it not to grow, he had a desire in his heart of something yet to come. He was looking for something yet future. Now watch with me in verse 13. He says, Having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written. Now he's quoting Psalms 116. I believe, therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. We're aligning ourselves. All those who have the same spirit of faith align themselves with David, who in his heart, though his house was not so, yet he has the consolation that God made with him an everlasting covenant that is ordered in all things and sure, and sure, that idea of surety, of course, comes from Hebrews chapter 6 where the Lord talks about his immutability and his oath. He swore by it. There was two things he mentions, the fact that he spoke and the fact that he swore by it. You see, God not only spoke our salvation in Christ before the world began, he promised it, he swore to it, he confirmed it by an oath. That's how sure it is. David rested on the surety of God's covenant, ordered in all things, and sure. Nothing. Notice this. Verse 14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us, O us, by Jesus, and shall present us with you. And by the way, if you ever want to know whether or not we will know one another in heaven, all you need is that verse right there. Listen to me. We're not some mindless glob in heaven. Uh, we shall have perfect knowledge in heaven, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. So there's a time of reunion in heaven, and we shall be presented together, for all things are yours. Notice, he says through the, uh, uh, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving abound, many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. It seems as though you could take that verse and you could just spread it out in that Bible text right there in Corinthians. He says, we're troubled on every side, but we're not distressed. He said, we're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Can you see David's life? You can just...